Okay, I'm going to do it for real this time. My name is Tajmika Torak, and this is Propaganda. There's so much that we could talk about related to The Bachelor. When I was thinking about our conversations around transformative justice, around accountability, around what does accountability in a public sphere look like? What does accountability in a parasocial world and parasocial relationships look like? There's one particular incident that I wanted to talk about because I think it's the juiciest for our our conversation. I am so excited for this journey. The only thing that could make this better is as I was like thinking about being here for you to be carrying me through this passion project of yours as if I was like laying in a hammock. You know what I mean? Like Because it's, it feels like story time. I'm ready for my story time. <laughs> and I already know that this is potentially going to become part of my pop culture homework for the week because you're going to say something And I'm going to want to know more about it. So I'm ready for my life to be changed. (laughs) You're going to want to follow up. You're going to be deep in some research on this. If we were slightly further along our journey, I probably would have had clips ready for you to watch and react to. But that was one more step than we are ready for yet. Yeah, that will come though, because um, maybe it'll come in the next season because I'm going to have to look them up. So who knows? Who knows how we're going to progress on this journey of reality TV? And I want you to know that I love reality dating shows and my kids think I'm absolutely ridiculous. My relationship to reality TV dating shows is probably the thing I have to do the most gymnastics to justify. It is a thing that is really popular that a lot of people are watching and paying attention to. So if I'm trying to have conversations about uh, toxic relationship dynamics, abusive relationship dynamics, healthy and unhealthy relationship dynamics, I can talk about specific dynamics in reality TV. And often a lot of people have seen it. And so it is a way to highlight specific dynamics that people feel like they have a relationship with. And so it's a really helpful tool in that way. I currently just got done watching The Ultimatum, The Queer Ultimatum, and that was delightful. So I've watched all of The Ultimatums. I watched Love is Blind, Married at First Sight. I watched that with a group of friends. So then we check in about the couples and what's happening. So I would say my relationship is a pretty joyful one. But I also would say that as a parent, this is probably not the most popular opinion, but I will watch a reality TV show. And when a couple is being problematic, which is like (laughs) a large percentage of of what's happening in reality dating shows, especially when they're very young and they're being fed alcohol literally around the clock, my kids will, especially my daughter, she gives me a hard time about it all the time. She's like, why are you watching this? But I did use it and anything else that happened to be on TV as an example of either ways to be in relationship or ways not to be. And so I would say it's both joyful and fun and also a teaching tool for me as a parent. I got married really young and had children really young. My youngest was born when I was 23. We got married when I was 24. So there is a part of it when I'm watching it that I'm just like, no, 
<laughs> live a little, like just, you don't have to get married. I tell my kids all the time, every relationship that you choose to have is a practice site for who you become as a person within relationship. It's not that I want you to like date a million people. That's not the point. The point to me is that you have a lot of experience within relationships with lots of different people. And that can look lots of different ways. I just want you to experience as much of the world as you can before you feel like you have to be dating someone or like making this long, lifelong commitment to a person that, you know, is maybe not intended or should be a lifelong commitment, you know? The thing that really helped me make sense of my love of reality TV dating shows is my favorite podcast, Game of Roses. Game of Roses uses game theory to talk about The Bachelor and Bachelor Nation and all of its various subsets. So The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise, soon to be The Golden Bachelor. <laughs> There's many offshoots. Golden Bachelor? What is The Golden Bachelor? So The Golden Bachelor is something that Bachelor Nation has been teasing for a while, and it is 65-plus folks doing The Bachelor format. So these are our elders looking for love. They have announced who The Golden Bachelor is. He's in his late 60s, early 70s, widower. I am for sure interested in watching The Golden Bachelor, especially in this format that The Bachelor has, which is sort of designed for younger folks who maybe haven't had a lot of experience. I'm super interested to see how that translates to somebody older who was married for a long time. And I'm really interested to see our collective response to the sexuality of older folks. Part of the structure of the season is that they have the very first night where a bunch of folks are eliminated. Then they go on a series of dates throughout the season. Then towards the end, they have a pretty set structure. So it's hometowns and it's usually the, the last four remaining people, the lead. So the bachelor, the bachelorette goes to the hometowns of each of the remaining four people, meets their families. Then the episode after that is Fantasy Suites, in which they have time without the cameras for the first time. And then the idea is that people are supposed to have sex or sex is on the table. It's always a part of the conversation. So I'm really interested to see how people react to the Fantasy Suite portion of Golden Bachelor, because as a society, we have a very interesting relationship with older folks' relationship with their sexuality. And so I'm interested to see what it brings out in the commentary of folks trying to be in relationship to that. Yeah, that's interesting. I think there's a lot of things that are interesting about aging during this time. I'm reading a book called Uncoupling, Happily Even After. In the foreword, the therapist who wrote the book said that relationships have changed more in the past 30 years than in the history of human condition. Like the way that we partner up and get married and do intimacy is just so different. I do think it's interesting that the way people are aging is different. The way that people's expectation of older people is different. We know that like people in nursing homes get STIs all the time. Like that's like a thing. It's a cultural thing that happens. Let me tell you something. If I make it to be that old and I'm vibing in some kind of nursing home, trust and believe, okay? 
Trust and believe it. I will be very busy. Okay. I am already planning to have another slut phase that is in my 65 plus. I'm already anticipating the day and I can't wait. We have been calling it the hoe circuit. (laughs) And when the hoe circuit begins and ends is very dependent on where people are in their lives. And you can have multiple hoe circuits. And I very much imagine that if I am an unmarried person and I have you know, I'm in a situation where I'm not leaving very often and these are my people and like it's safe and consensual that I will just, it'll just be another hobby. That seems like totally reasonable way to age. I'm curious also to know about who is going to be the target audience for this version. I'm curious what your relationship is to The Bachelor. I did watch it. I think when it first came out, a lot of my access to TV now is through some kind of streaming, like Netflix, Hulu, what what have you. And so I watched The Bachelor when it was like, I had to be home on Thursday night, you know what I mean, to watch it. I did watch it pretty consistently for at least a couple seasons, and then I fell off. I vaguely track it because I knew when they had their first Black Bachelorette, I see some of the problems that come up with it, of course, because I'm paying attention to pop culture but I'm not super connected to like the storyline. It's been many years since I've watched the show from start to finish. I knew the stuff about the hometown visit. I remember, as you're speaking, I remember that. I remember the fantasy room. I remember some of the drama that came out of the fantasy suite because everybody has different expectations about who's supposed to be having sex with who. Outside of that, I'm pretty brand new. I'm a, an empty vessel. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's so much that we could talk about related to The Bachelor. So I'm going to set the stage a little bit with some of the the people. First, there's Chris Harrison. So Chris Harrison was the longtime host of The Bachelor for like 20 years. Hi, I'm Chris Harrison. And no, I'm not The Bachelor. Tonight, the journey begins again. This time, it's one woman handing out roses. Ladies, we've ended up facing something we've never run into before. I forgot her name. I wasn't the girl I wanted to give it to. I froze and forgot I said can't. The most shocking finale in Bachelor history. Then there's Rachel Lindsay. So Rachel Lindsay was the first Black lead. So not only the first Black Bachelorette, but the first Black lead. So the lead is the person who is trying to find love. So either the Bachelor or the Bachelorette is the lead. And Rachel Lindsay was the first one. And a lot of people have opinions about how production was working, how early the decision was made. One of the leading theories is that she was a contestant on Nick Vial's season. And so Nick Vial is probably one of the most popular sort of famous leads in Bachelor Nation. He has uh, Vial Files podcast. Many folks who talk about him will talk about him as one of the greatest players in the game of The Bachelor. So Rachel Lindsay was a contestant on Nick Vial's season. She did not find love. She made it, I believe, through hometowns and then was sent home and then was announced as the first Black Bachelorette. She went through her season. She did find love. She's still with the person who she got engaged to on the show. There are only a series of people who are still together over the 20 years of The Bachelor and Bachelorette, and Rachel Lindsay and her partner, whose name I cannot remember, uh, are one of the few couples that are still together. So there's Rachel Lindsay, very beloved member of Bachelor Nation. 
there's Matt James and Tyler Cameron. So Tyler Cameron was a contestant on Hannah Brown's season, and he made it pretty far through top three or four. Very beloved by Bachelor Nation as well. So he's very handsome. He's a dancer and a construction worker. Everybody on the show is like traditionally attractive and like, you know, it's like, it's kind of a low bar for like, I feel like these are people who don't have a hard time having a following. Well, some of them do, though. So there's a lot of to do about who is able to build an influencer career off of the show. And there are many people who have. And there are many people who have tried and not been successful at trying to build an influencer career from being from being on the show. And so Tyler Cameron left the show just everybody like all Twitter paid it. He is, I think, very handsome. He still has one of the biggest social media followings of anyone ever on The Bachelor. And so he has a best friend, Matt James. And Matt James was only on the show as Tyler's friend. And then they really blew up on social media together. So when Tyler Cameron got really big after being on Hannah Brown's season, he did a lot of content with Matt James. So that takes us to 2020. There is a pandemic. There are the George Floyd uprisings. And in the midst of a national conversation about police violence, about anti-Blackness, that also touches Bachelor Nation. And so there starts to be a pretty intense pushback to Bachelor Nation for never having a Black Bachelor. So they had had Rachel Lindsay as the only Black lead, which had been years before, and then not again, had no other Black leads, including never a Black Bachelor. Within a week of that push, ABC, where The Bachelor airs, immediately announces Matt James as the first Black Bachelor. There's a couple reasons why that's out of the norm. In general, the lead is usually a contestant on a previous season. And so this is one of the only times where they pick a lead who's never been on the show before. There's a lot of controversy in Bachelor Nation in that there had been several beloved Black contestants who people were really pushing to be the first Black Bachelor. I will say my opinion of almost all of those folks were pretty outspoken and politicized about anti-Blackness, about racism, about how the show had treated them. And so they were not, you know, viable leads for the show. And so then Matt James, who had never been on the show, but who was best friends with this white contestant who everybody loves, they immediately put Matt James in. So then Matt James's season airs. It's fine. It's a bubble season. So they film it during COVID, where usually in The Bachelor, they travel all over the world. And this one, they just stayed in one location. They rented out a ranch somewhere and just spent the whole season there. So it's kind of boring. There's only so much you can do with 30 people on a ranch. So where it starts to get interesting is at the end of the day, Matt James picks a woman named Rachel Coconnell as his ring winner. So that's the person who wins at the end is the ring winner. So Rachel Kirkconnell is a white woman. And as that's happening, a bunch of pictures come out of her dressed up at an antebellum ball at Georgia State University in 2018. (laughs) I remember this. (laughs) I didn't know 
that she was like, I did not know the backstory at all. So like, it was like on the periphery, but like, I remember, I remember seeing the photos of her in the, in, like everybody in these gowns at, oh, you know, I, I uh, took my kids down South to, um, we went down to like Memphis area and there's a highway through Tennessee that takes you through like Memphis, Chattanooga, I'm forgetting where else, but you know, there's multiple places. And one of the things that we did is we stopped at a former plantation and I always take my kids everywhere we go. And you can ask them, I have said that I'm going to create a mural someday or a, a big photo collage of all the museums that they've been to and how bored they look. <laughs> that sounds like me taking my partner around Europe to various museums and just being like, babe, babe, isn't this so great? And him just being like, mm-hmm. ah. yeah. <laughs> I have many pictures of my kids on different benches begging me to stop reading every plaque. You know what I mean? Because I just, I could spend all day in a museum without a problem, not a single, which is wild given how much ADHD this noggin is holding. But like a museum is like candy for me. Just so much information. I just love it so much. So I take them all over the place to something to learn no matter where we go, right? So we go to this plantation and I really did in my my hopes and dreams, I was like, of course, there's like the house, but usually there's quarters where enslaved people lived. And there's usually, in my mind, at least, I was thinking there's some additional history. And we get there and they're taking us through, you know, the tour. We we go through the house first. At some point, I realized like the tour is coming to an end and we have not like I know everything about these white people, including where they took a shit every every morning. And we have not even left the building yet. And so I'm like, you know, I raise my hand and I'm like, hey, so <laughs> hello. Hi. Hello. I was just wondering if we were going to talk about black history. You know, like I was just wondering if we were going to stop talking about how they kept the house cool and maybe talk about the enslaved people. And so they're like, well, actually, this situation, I don't know what the word, this historical place, this plantation ran out of money. So we sold the land where the enslaved people had their quarters. And I'm just sitting there like, you know, I I don't even know what to say to that. I was just like, sure, sure, sure. That, I mean, that fucking tracks for one. And of course, for everything that happens is an opportunity to have a conversation, you know, with my kids about history and like the eradication of our history in the United States, which is exactly what we're seeing with the fight over, you know, critical race theory. And I mean, we're seeing it everywhere. There were only like two spaces where there was actual history about my ancestors. One was a cot that was outside of the room of the children's rooms. So of course, that is where their enslaved person took care of the children. I mean, it breaks my heart. I get teary-eyed thinking about it. There were thumbprints in the brick of the house that they, they were able to show that and a very short, very incomplete list of the people who had been enslaved on that property at some time. It was a little devastating, you know, like there, there's like the, the reality of being someone who's so disconnected from that cultural history. And I don't mean the history of enslavement. Like, that's the thing. Like, we know that, like, you know what I mean? Like that part, we understand, we know, we, we live the trauma of that 
in lots of different places. But like when you're trying to seek that kind of connection and understanding that's more individual people and like what their individual experiences were within the context of this horrific tragedy and violence, and they sold it because they couldn't afford to keep it. When I think about the violence of white women dressed in antebellum clothing and like that's like a party for them it is i mean it's it it's one of those things where i don't you you don't want to feign surprise like i don't want to be like oh i'm so surprised that white women did some fucking racist shit at a party and also it's just so inhumane like it's a very inhumane way to be to cosplay as people who trafficked my ancestors and call that a party or a gala or a celebration or a wedding. Like people get married at plantations all the time. I just, I don't understand it. I don't, but I do, I do remember it. And those, those two things, that's where my brain went. This is a very, very different experience of history and a very different way of it's not even different it's like you're not even reckoning with who you who you are in this situation like the role that you're playing is violence you are dressing if it were halloween you are dressing up as violence that's what you're doing and it just doesn't i don't understand even though i understand (laughs) that's what i'm trying to say so anyway exactly the pictures of her at the antebellum plantation themed ball those come out, then people do such deep dives on everyone's social media that a couple other things come out. She liked this racist picture of these white women dressed up in Mexican like caricature, so in, in ponchos and sombreros and fake mustaches. There's also pictures of Confederate flags used as decoration at the antebellum ball. And so then there's some other pictures of her posing in front of Confederate flags. That's the series of things that come out just as Rachel and James decided to be in a relationship but didn't get engaged at the end of his season. So a bunch of things happen after that. Matt James and Rachel Carconnell take a break from dating. So they break up for a period of time. Matt James does some sort of light public statement that is saying like, hey, there's some work to do here. She needs to do some work. I care about her they're broken up for a period of time. And then actually today they're still together. They're still in a relationship, but they take, I think a nine month break where he's like, Hey, you need to like go do some work from personal work. Nine months was enough. Nine, nine months is all it took. Great question. Is nine months enough? We'll just let that question sit. We'll come back to it. (laughs) The other big thing that happens is that Chris Harrison, the longtime host goes on to a news kind of pop culture show that Rachel Lindsay is hosting. So then Rachel Lindsay, after she leaves being the first Black Bachelorette, has built a career for herself being a host and a TV personality, and she's good at it. She has she does a bunch of different gigs. And so she's interviewing Chris Harrison about this situation. I already know. It does not go well. <laughs> yeah, don't say. <laughs> You know, one of the things that's complicated about this is that I think that you really have to watch the full conversation and you really have to take it in a larger context. 
Because if you pull out individual quotes of what Chris Harrison said, I don't actually disagree with some of the points that he was making. So some of the points that he's making is that Rachel Kirkconnell is young and that the intensity of the backlash and the canceling of her was very intense. And he was at least using language to say, is it reasonable to ruin this woman's life for something she did when she was very young is the point he's making which I think is a conversation, a reasonable conversation to have if we start at a baseline where we understand anti-Blackness, we understand the context, we understand the harm to people, understand what it means to attend to when you're participating in that kind of harm, when you had plenty of information to be aware of the harms of enslavement. Just to be clear, this was what she was doing in college, correct? Yes. It was in uh, 2018, uh, which was just, I think, three years before. It's just three years earlier. Yes. Yes. And I'm always just like, wait, so this is a college. This this was a college. This is a college educated human being. And of course, that doesn't as someone who dabbled in school and has zero degrees to her name. Obviously, I feel like that doesn't necessarily mean the things that people make it out to mean every time, please, there's value to a college education, but obviously there are people, I mean, (laughs) we elected someone who, (laughs) who like went to college and clearly that did not work out that, that, that didn't carry forward. But like, there is a sort of way that white women in particular, their youth and their innocence. And I'm using that term very, very loosely. And, uh, you know, their perceived innocence under white ladiness. Yes. Is, uh, is held up as like, um, a force field against the sort of feedback and, and, and criticism and fair criticism that someone, no one should be doing those things. Um, and also I do know and believe that people, I, I remember who I was in college. I remember, like, I'm not the same person. I definitely made mistakes. I definitely did things that were participating in white supremacy and oppression and isms all over the place. And so I can hold both things as being true. And I know that if it were me and a white woman who's going to get more of a force field around those things, who's going to get picked as the person who needs to be protected and who is not going to be protected in that situation? Yeah, exactly. And so so the nuance of if you just pick out the quotes where he's saying she shouldn't be canceled for making a mistake, I don't know. Reasonable people can have a discussion about that. The reality is if you watch the whole clip in conversation with Rachel Lindsay, first of all, I love Rachel Lindsay. She's so clever. She's funny. She's just, she's really smart. She is so good about being really frank and clear and loving about the things she's saying. She's not going to come for you, but she's also going to stand her ground. She's not going to let you bowl her over. She is very clear about her agency and her personhood. And she just takes up the space she's supposed to, she, that is right for her to take up. It was beautiful to watch her in her season. It's beautiful to watch her now. She says a lot of the things you just said, which is you can't take it out of the context of, it was three years ago. <laughs> Because so Chris Harrison's trying to say things like, 
well, it was in the past. And she's like, well, it's 2018. It was wrong in 2018. It, you could have, you had plenty of information to know that wasn't something you should be doing in 2018. Because Chris Harrison keeps saying, well, in 2021, you know, we know this is wrong. She was like, no, no, in 2018, we knew too. We knew, every, everybody knew, had all the information to know. Yeah. And hey, Chris, um, someone's still doing it in 2021 and in 2022 and 2023. Um, and so I feel like at some point we have to stop defending or trying to create a sense of like innocence around these choices. Um, because someone that that's the piece that always gets me too is like, she wasn't the only one there. So like, I'm not even assigning all of the criticism and blame of like how she came to be in that situation with her. I'm sure it was sanctioned by the school. There are multiple people who, many people, it sounds like, who participated, who planned. This was a premeditated act. <laughs> yeah, you had to have gotten a special dress, often probably made. People weren't wearing things they just had in their closet. If you look at the pictures, they are designed period piece ball gowns that somebody either had to have made, designed, bought, and altered. It takes many steps of thought and planning. You didn't just oopsies find yourself in that situation. Right. I mean, I can say that I have never found myself <laughs> accidentally shopping for antebellum costumes. You know, like that's, that would not be an accident that I would find myself in. But yeah, when I think about it, I'm like, there's so many people, any one of those people could have been like, maybe this is not, have you guys ever heard of, there are people who were there who knew, who knew absolutely what they were doing. 100%. No doubt. Yeah. So there's this interview with Chris Harrison and Rachel Lindsay. He keeps pushing back. Rachel Lindsay keeps saying like, yeah, no, that's not it. So the outcome of this interview, lots of things happen. But at the end of the day, Chris Harrison is removed as host of The Bachelor functionally as the result of this interview. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Man, I would have loved to have been in the room for that conversation. Yeah. So some of the things that we know is that he got a multi-million dollar settlement that included him signing an NDA. He stayed under the radar for a year or so. Then he launched a podcast. He talks around this situation. He'll say the situation. I don't think he's ever said Rachel Lindsay's name in the podcast. He'll sort of talk about it. He talks about his cancellation. That is what happens. He is removed as host. The other things that happen is that Rachel issues an apology on her Instagram that I am very interested in. So maybe that can be some of your homework to go listen to it. And the gist of her apology is for people who are defending me, stop. For everyone who's saying I didn't do something wrong, stop. I did do something wrong. Um, I need you to stop defending me. I, what I did was wrong and I'm taking the time to attend to that. And I like, it was wrong. Please stop defending me. It's basically the gist. Which part? Did she say explicitly, like, what part was wrong? Like, So, yeah, Rachel Corconnell issues an apology on Instagram. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. It's a two or three minute long apology where she says, you know, I'm going to be putting links in the description as well as in my bio for where folks can get more information. I am doing my work and I just need everyone to stop saying I didn't make a mistake because I did. 
And I found it to be a very grounded response. Maybe a response is better than apology, where she wasn't pretending that she had just magically solved the like racism inside of her, but she did look dead into the camera and post on her own Instagram saying, I was wrong. I don't need defending. As internet acknowledgements go, that is closer to what I would want to see from people than the other things people do, which is either rush to an apology that is fake, that you haven't actually had time to do any meaningful change work, or you just don't say anything. Somewhere in the middle where it's clearly she's not saying she solved anything, but also I do think she's trying to react to the defend a white woman piece, where she's trying to say, I don't need defending. Don't defend me. I did do something wrong. And I'm, I'm working on that over here. That's actually not for Instagram to see, which I appreciated. I just, I found it, I found to be, I just was sitting with her response. That's a very interesting response. Yeah, I'll have to go and watch it. I am someone who will not apologize, like give a blanket apology if I do not believe that I did something wrong. And I think it's really important that I don't because I think if I, like you said, if I'm just like, it doesn't carry any weight. It's not a real thing. And I don't enjoy when other people do that. And I'm often the person in a conversation, whether it's a conflict or just a challenge that will say like, do you mean that? Because if your tone sounds like you do not mean to apologize to me, then now we're having another fight. You know what I mean? (laughs) I often have to fix my tone when I'm apologizing because I could have a tone problem. I have to be like, the words and the delivery matter (laughs) and the timing and all of it goes into the piece. So I was like, fix my face, fix my tone, make, you know, get clear about, get grounded first before I'm saying the words and doing the actions. Right. Cause I'm like, cause you mean that same question, right? Do I mean it? Do I mean it? And I think that there are often times where people want an immediate apology. And I also don't think that that's necessarily the right way to go. Um, I think you can say like, I'm listening. I understand that something I did uh, or this thing that I did specifically caused you great pain. And I am so sorry about that. I am still sitting with my own behavior, my own thought process, what brought me to do that thing. And like, what parts I do want to apologize for very clearly and concisely, the fear of like being canceled or the sort of PR moves where you're just like, I just have to get something out because people are mad at me doesn't necessarily serve either. It doesn't serve the population that's been hurt because it's not really transforming anything. And it also doesn't give people, even when they should already know, what people should know, we could write volumes on. People need a time to get to the thing. I say about my kids to a lot of my beloveds that my children deserve to have a season where they're just wrong. Sometimes they are not going to believe the right thing because I didn't believe the right thing. And no matter how many times I tell them or or how many things I'm teaching them, they are whole bodied humans that are just out here living their own lives, making their own decisions. There's more going on than just my voice. Thank goodness. And their journey towards a learning, there are more things happening on that journey than just my guidance. And I don't want to supersede 
their process by being authoritarian about what they believe. Because truly, I could say, this is what you believe. They don't believe it. Right. It has to be embodied. It has to be like experienced. It can't just be imparted on you. It has to be a decision. And as much as there are things that I want people to get that are like safety things, right? Like there's a lot of things in the world right now that we need people to get urgently because it's causing violence and harm and pain in lots of different ways. And I think as both a parent and as a facilitator that's like in rooms with people who are learning, I also witness and have to honor that, hello, and also with me, like there is a process that gets me towards the learning and everyone, if possible, as much space as we can give and context and support and love around people learning only helps them get there sooner than if we're just like, you're wrong, you're bad, you're never going to change, I hate you, go away, get on that island and never come out ever again, you are canceled. I think there needs to be a pause. Cancellation is a strategy. It is not the only strategy. I too have personally (laughs) canceled people in my own life, let alone like public figures. And I think that part of that parasocial relationship trap is that we start treating people in our lives like these public figures that we have this expectation that they immediately apologize, they immediately change, and then we and that is the only way that we can move forward. And it's just not realistic. Yeah, that was one of the things I was hoping to talk about is this question that I have all the time in transformative justice work, which is about reasonable or right-sized consequences. So I talk to people about this idea that it is not that we're protecting people from an appropriate consequence for your behavior. If you continue to treat people in your life bad, they might not want to hang out with you anymore. And that is actually an appropriate consequence for treating people bad. I don't need to protect someone from that consequence. That might be really good information about how you're acting that people don't want to spend time around you. I want to let people experience what are the reasonable consequences. And I believe there are unreasonable consequences like not being able to have your basic needs met, not being safe in your body, that is not a reasonable consequence for treating somebody bad. There's a lot of nuanced space in there. I don't think anyone is the determiner of what is the line between an inappropriate consequence and a reasonable consequence. It's highly contextual, depends on lots of different things. I think the question that's most important is this thing you're saying, which is I care a lot about how that happens in for the people in my actual life who I'm actually living in relationship with. But there is a way in which how that happens on these public stages, like with Chris Harrison, like in these big media moments, where what is the consequence for folks on that public stage tells us something about what we're doing interpersonally. I'm curious what your thoughts are around how do we understand right-sized consequences for folks who are public figures, when they are racist, when they do harmful things, when there is something they are doing that is harming another person? Oh, I have so many thoughts about this. (laughs) There's actually not much that I can do to a famous person. And I think that our sort of outrage, while often is very justified, isn't necessarily doing anything to them. 
I think it depends on the famous person or, or the public figure that we're talking about. It really depends on how much they ingest feedback, uh, how much they value feedback about who they are as a person. Some of it is also driving traffic their way and in ways that actually build their platform. Just like this podcast, right? Like as we're having this conversation, we are going to find people who probably love pop culture and are curious about TJ or who love TJ and are curious about pop culture. And that's how we shape a community by just being who we are in the world. Like we find our people. I think that when folks are outraged, public figures respond to that often by either turning towards and making the apology, making the statement, moving towards trying to be different or better, or they turn towards the population that's telling them that they're awesome and they're great and they're, these other people are losers and you shouldn't listen to them. I'm always like, but like, who is, who knows them? You know, like if we're really thinking about TJ principles around trying not to respond to violence with more violence and really deepening our relationships so that we can both be accountable when we cause harm and ask for accountability when people in our lives have caused harm, then I'm always thinking like, okay, so who knows Chris Harrison? Who are the people that really should be walking with him through this? Because it's not me. Like, I'm just some person out here in Lansing, Michigan. Like, yeah, I'm, Chris Harrison is not impacted by my opinion. Don't actually know how to make that jump for people who are public figures, right? Because I'm not in relationship with them. But when people come to me and they say, hey, this person hurt me and I don't, I'm not fucking with them anymore and I don't want you to either. This is like a warning, right? And I'm like, I'm curious about that. Like, and I'll ask, is there anything else that I should be doing in service of repair? If you think that I know this person enough to cut them off in a way that's going to make an impact, then I'm actually really curious about if there is a way for me to bridge and have a conversation with them to try to move them towards accountability if that feels that's what someone in the situation would want. Because not everybody's looking for repair. I'm also not policing people's relationship goals. But I do think that those of us who are on the outside of that hurt, on the outside of the actual, like the critical point that where people are being healed from something or they're fighting something, that we have a role to play in both protection and support and loving the person who was hurt and turning to the other person who we have a relationship with and expressing very directly and clearly what the expectation we have of them just as a human. Like regardless of how this relationship goes, that thing that you did was really harmful. I don't want to see you carry that into your future, into other relationships. And I'm curious about how I can support you in getting the thing that you need. And if that's a nine month break in our relationship or, you know what I mean? Like if that, if it's, if I can give you books to read, if we can go on walks and talk about it, if I can support you in building your pod for accountability, I just, when I'm advocating with youth, I will often say to them that there are two things that we're talking about right now. One on this side is you get everything that you want. 
you know, that person goes to jail, is expelled, whatever the consequence you're imagining that is the thing, the solution you want, that's over here. And on this other side is nothing. Nothing happens. No one comes to the rescue. No one responds. Nothing changes. What I want to talk about is how many things are in the middle. How many things can we imagine? What are the possibilities that we can actually transform the situation as people who are loving and caring and want justice and want everyone to be safe and supported? What can we do together? And we may find that seven out of 10 of our ideas are absolute crap and they're not going to work and we have to go back to the drawing board. But I feel like that's closer to justice, the work of justice, than just being like, sorry, you messed up. Or on the survivor side, sorry, you can't have that. This thing that you want, you can't have it. And now nothing else can happen. And I'm like, "Mm, that doesn't seem right. Part of what I learned from doing domestic violence work is really looking at the impact, who is impacted and how by different situations and what is the consequence for different folks. And what I see from this situation is that Chris Harrison ultimately got a multi-million dollar settlement. He was removed from the show. He now has a podcast. I'm sure he's monetizing. He's moving on with his career. The best I could tell, he got a paid year sabbatical. His career is probably going to, it seems like it's ending up back on track. He is, you know, back in the news. He made plenty of money. He's rich, rich. I find myself really curious about the impact to Matt James, particularly. He has been very quiet about the situation. He issued a couple of different broad statements or kind of sort of non-statement statements where he said something, but not anything definitive. The things that I can see as a person who doesn't know any of the people involved, I've never met them, I've never talked to them, I've never had a private conversation with anybody, is that they are in a relationship that Rachel Kirkconnell and Matt James are still, as we're recording this, in a relationship with each other. I do find myself thinking a lot about what I saw around Matt James's relationship to whiteness as a part of the public conversation. So this happens after he films a season. I just find myself curious about that. And, you know, I don't have more public information. And I think it's more like a noticing than maybe is my job to do like meaning making about it. But this piece around because Matt James was so quiet, he didn't make big public statements. His place in the impact to him on having chosen somebody to love who he's still in a relationship with, who, as of when she met him, did not seem to have a complex race or even a basic race analysis or understanding of anti-Blackness. I find myself curious about the impact on him and his agency. And I'm sure it's complicated and I can't ever know the answer to that. It's a part of that that I just find myself thinking about a lot. I can definitely relate to feeling sort of responsible for the white people in your life because they're like, it's like this weird thing where you know they don't know. They can't, they couldn't possibly. Like even if they were the best white person to ever be a white person that read all the books and does all the practices, they still could never fully embody those lessons, that information, that lived experience. What is that? Is that something that comes from whiteness that makes their work our work all the time? Like we're just always carrying white people's work for them. 
so it's like, is that like a socialized thing? Is that just feeling a connection and a responsibility to my people who I love? That's also, that's like a, a better way to think, or not a better, but like a less and uh, a less of an indictment kind of a way to think about it. But I'm also very curious about what it must have felt like for him to find that out and to have everyone looking at him to make a decision to like do something about it. Like I can even imagine like, why are you still with her? This is the person you want to have children with. Like I can just hear it and I'm not even him. So I can't imagine how that must have, how painful that must have been, you know? Yeah. Or being the first black bachelor who's then picking a white woman as your ring winner. And their thing is, is like, he shouldn't have to be individually responsible for the fact that there's not been a history of many black men in the franchise with complex experiences that all has to weigh on his individual, highly racialized choice. Um, that's a lot of pressure on one person. Yeah. And y'all gave him a house full of people and those are the people he could have chosen from. So like, and mostly white women, which was a producer choice, right? He doesn't get to choose the contestants on the season. Hi, I just want to come on here and say a few things. You will hear more from me about everything, hopefully sooner than later, but I really just wanted to say that, you know, over the last few weeks, um, since I put my statement out, I've, I've gotten a lot of messages. Um, I've gotten a lot of people asking me, well, what have you done to change since then? And I've also had a lot of people message me saying that they aren't understanding why people are so upset, um, but they want to, and they've asked for, for resources, which I think is great. Um, but then there's also people messaging me saying, you know, you've done nothing wrong. Don't listen to people. I think that the first big step in all of this is white people stepping up and, and taking accountability in this. And I want and, and need to use my, my privilege and my platform that I so do not deserve um, just to shine a light on these issues and, and try and do what I can to you know, take a step in the right direction. If you are in my comments or defending me anywhere, telling people that I did nothing wrong, um, that there's nothing to be hurt about, there's nothing to be angry about or offended about, please stop. That's not our place to tell people what they can and can't be offended about, you know, that's, that's wrong. Um, and that's part of the problem. So please stop saying that I did nothing wrong. That's not true. You know, if, if you really want to support me, then, then encourage me to do better and encourage those around you to do better and to accept change and, and allow others to learn and grow. A few moments later. And we are now joining you from the future where Tashmika got to watch the Rachel Kirkconnell apology video, got to read her statement. 
I did. I went down the internet rabbit hole. I watched the interview where Chris Harrison made some less than great statements. That was very uncomfortable to watch, really sad and unsurprising. You know, I do feel like sometimes we give celebrities too much credit for what they might know. And this felt very much like a moment where whoever was in charge had a little more faith or was as ill-equipped as he was to respond to the moment. And that was really sad. And also watching the actual bachelorettes respond in such a beautiful way, both in holding him to his words and accountability and also in practicing their own accountability in her apology. So I went looking for the video. And before I saw the video, I clicked on the hyperlink to see the written out apology. And I have to say that it gave me goosebumps. It was so beautiful. And it came across to me as being incredibly sincere. I feel like there are times when people, whether famous people or just our everyday people, make an apology that is, it feels like every apology that you you wish other apologies looked like that in the thoughtfulness. And it didn't feel like a PR person wrote it to me, especially as someone who ends up serving as a, the person who writes a crisis communication or responds to something that's hard. It felt very much like this was a person who sincerely was apologizing and recognized her part and recognized not just her part in what had happened, but her part in a greater movement that's working towards anti-racism, working towards equity. And, you know, she uses the language of unity, which I don't really use the language of unity. And also because of the way that she framed the apology, both the written one and the one that she spoke, I was <laughs> was definitely okay with it. Because obviously that's like one word that is not a word I would choose, but it was endearing to me. I found her to be really endearing even though and because she was clear that she had more work to do. She was not standing on a high horse, right? Coming to the community, talking as if she were an expert, like she has learned this thing now and she's bequeathing this information unto the rest of the, the white folks. She really felt to me like she was collecting her people and saying, I can explain in this really clear way what I did wrong, and I'm happy to do so, and I'm happy to provide resources for those of you who don't understand. And I need you all to stop defending me and stop fighting in the comments. I was wrong. We don't get that very often from anyone. I was comparing the sensitivity of white people. This morning, uh, a friend texted me about something that's happening locally and how white folks are celebrating this article that was written in a very slanted way, very white supremacist way. And they're so sensitive about the risk of being called racist that they flip all the way over to cheer anything that defends them, right? And I was like, white people to me are starting to feel like wearing white pants to a barbecue, <laughs> like so sensitive. <laughs> Beautiful. 
I'm like, how are you so sensitive? You chose to wear those pants. You chose to wear white pants to a barbecue. You chose to do these things and participate in even some. You're actually, at least in theory, you want to be about this work, at least in terms of your stated values. And at the same time, you're surprised that you got barbecue on your pants. This is hard work. This is what it is. And we need folks, white folks in particular, to stop being such tenderonies about it, especially given how Black people don't get to be tender around these things. One of the things I feel so bummed about is that in everything that happened as a result of that interview, Rachel Lindsay did not get care in that situation. She showed up professional and grounded and on point. And Chris Harrison got to have a lot of attention on him. Rachel Corconnell did this grounded work that she was doing. It had a really big impact on Rachel Lindsay. And she didn't get a moment of reconciliation about that. If any kind of support for Rachel Lindsay, it's mostly that her career is doing great. I mean, that might be the the piece is like she's a professional. Um, she has a podcast. She still does lots of work um, in the entertainment interviewing place. So her career is is on point and she's very successful at it. So but that's I, I want her to have that. And I want her to have like care and grace and apologies and like interpersonal care that I just didn't see happen. Yes, because I know from lived experience the cost of being a Black woman who says a hard thing that shouldn't be hard in the first place. And watching that interview, I felt the same way. And I think the important thing that I want to elevate in this conversation is I know that white folks are going to hire Rachel Kirkconnell. I know that Black folks are probably going to be more likely to hire Rachel Kirkconnell. That is not going to be Rachel Lindsay's experience. And I know that the consequences of that are going to be less visible to everyone because she does not get the same amount of grace in the public eye. So if she were to complain or name the consequences, it would only cause more consequences. That doesn't mean the consequences are not something that she can navigate. It doesn't mean that she's not going to be successful. It just means that she is going to have to work harder and be more self-protective and not be able to be a vulnerable white woman in a gray sweatshirt just talking to the internet about her apology in the same way. I did enjoy watching the apology. I guess enjoy is the wrong word. I really appreciate your perspective on how this conversation, this event that happened, the way that people try to practice accountability, both the bachelorette as like a thing in Hollywood, but also how the community responded. Really, there's so many different pieces that match what happens in community when There is a rupture around racism and the people who experience the harm. And I mean, really, even if we're not talking about racism, if we're talking about disability justice, if we're talking about classism, if we're talking about the medical industrial complex, if we're talking about any of these points of harm where someone who is being marginalized and oppressed and experiencing violence says something publicly 
then they become the enemy, not just of the institution that they're challenging, but of the entire community that is holding up that institution. They make them into the enemy. It's heartbreaking because there is a lived experience that we can benefit from, but we can't benefit from it if every time this information comes to us, even in like a really beautiful way, we shut it down and we make the person who's experiencing the harm the enemy because we get uncomfortable with the idea that something needs to change and that we might actually be a part of the problem. Yeah, I... I'm just very interested in how do we have complex, hard conversations in public and maybe even short of public in a larger community setting. Um, I'm not sure that it actually makes sense to have a lot of the most complex conversations in the most public way. I think there are different conversations or have um, different times and places and different scales that are appropriate, but a lot of meaning making does happen in a public space. And just like you were saying, we often look towards famous people, celebrities, and people who are famous for all sorts of reasons to do the meaning making for us, sometimes with a level of expertise and sometimes just because they're people who have a mic and not because they're people who have any experience, expertise, knowledge, um, practice in doing that work. I was just listening to this week's episode of Armchair Expert. The way our Armchair Expert is set up is that Mondays is a usually a celebrity guest and then Thursdays is experts on experts. So they'll have people who've written books or are experts on some very specific topic and then they dive deep. And Monday's episode was with JVN, also known as Jonathan Van Ness. They were supposed to be the celebrity guest and most of the episode ends up being this debate between Dax Shepard and JVN about trans athletes and whether trans kids can play sports. It was so painful and heartbreaking to listen to because one of the things that happens is that JVN is talking from their own lived experience as a trans person and an athlete. And Dax is just sort of spouting turfy kind of talking points. And from Dex's perspective, he's trying to do this thing he does a lot, which is just like debate hot topics. And JVN starts crying at some point and says, you know, I actually came on here to promote my podcast, not to fight with you about the rights of trans people. It's not what I came here for. And then the podcast actually makes a pretty abrupt cut. <laughs> um, and then they just jump into a new topic mostly. And I bring it up because it it has that same kind of tenderness of how do we have complex conversations? Who gets centered? When is it just a fun talking point for someone? And when is it people like literally defending their own safety, their own lives, their own existence? And at the end of that episode, Dax, he does two kinds of apologies. It's hard because you don't hear repair in the conversation. You don't hear JVN saying, yes. I thank you. I really, that was repaired. You kind of hear JVN just kind of go back to keeping it light and trying to just move through the interview. And so I've been watching the Instagram of uh, Armchair Expert and then JVN just released a video making some talking points and, and they do this thing on Armchair Expert called the fact check. So where um, mostly it's where Monica, who is an Indian woman, a woman of color, who fact checks 
Dex because he just says stuff and he's wrong some amount of time. So I appreciate that they have the structure, the idea that like he's just saying stuff and then he gets fact checked. But JVN does their own fact check um, on their Instagram where they were saying, okay, well, like, actually, I got a little bit wrong the percentage of intersex folks in the world. And so I just find myself thinking about this piece around if you're someone like Armchair Expert and Dax Shepard, where they're pumping out 10 hours of content a week, boom, boom, boom. And so you're gonna make mistakes and you're going to have to be very sharp about your skill of repair and how do you take care of that and how do we model that? How do we figure that out? And it's really rough going and the consequences are so high when it goes badly. That story breaks my heart because I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to be in a room with someone who is technically on your side or like, you know, is the, the friendly person who invited you into a situation. And the next thing you know, you're defending your humanity. And the next thing you know, it's a devil's advocate kind of conversation. And you're like, how the fuck did I even get in here? Like, this is not my scene. This is not what I was invited for. And suddenly I'm doing something that I would never do in any other space. Because I do have a commitment to myself to not negotiate my humanity or the humanity of my people. If I am in that room, that means that other things have failed, that I was tricked <laughs> or that my boundaries have slipped. Because at baseline, the people I want to be around are the people who can already acknowledge that I am a human and I deserve human rights. And then the question then becomes, okay, we can agree that you, that Black people deserve equity, justice, healing. The question then becomes, how do we do that? How do we make reparations? How do we change the policy? How do we implement the policy? Ever, that part is negotiable. The part about humanity is not. And so to be sitting in a room with a white cis man who is rich in celebrity and financial resources and have him invite and really trap Jonathan Vanessa into a conversation that he did not intend to have is so violent and so violating. And I really appreciate Doc Shepard. I do. I really like him. I don't really, I don't listen to this podcast or maybe I've only listened to like one episode. I can't remember. No, I heard him on Smartless. I've never listened to his podcast. I heard him on Smartless and I love that episode because he is a survivor of lots of things, right? And he talks about his alcoholism. And it's interesting to me, as per usual, that a white man who has experienced that much, both violence and the challenges of having an addiction, is shitting on somebody else's lived experience. That it's a little too, it's a little too much. It's a little too much because you know what? I listen, I did, I again, I listened to him on Smartless and I heard the way that those men held his pain right? And honored what he was bringing forward. And he told the story beautifully. And I found a lot of um, sort of kindredness with him around those things. You know, I, I remember him talking about all of the risks that he took that sort of came out of this trauma and this addiction. I was like, holy shit, let, may I remind you that I was in Mexico drinking as a teenager. So like, I found so much affinity with that. And that's the thing that really feels hurtful is that you, everyone wants someone else to listen to their story, believe them, hold them through pain. 
And somehow we have not somehow, I know this is that there's also data around the fact that our pain is just worse than everybody else's. And I need people to be different around that. Like I need people to start to really listen and trust that when someone says they're in pain, that that thing is real and that we don't need to publicly trap them into a conversation just to create controversy or to get the answers that maybe you didn't take the time to read about before you entered this conversation. Uh, Of any cis white man, I listen to more from Dax Shepard than anyone. Like I, I listen to his podcast regularly. He's actually the only cis man who I regularly take in content from actually white or not. That's just not the content I am usually listening to. I have listened to every episode of armchair expert actually, except the Dr. Phil one. I got like halfway through the Dr. Phil one. And then I just was like, I was going to have to skip the rest of this. You know, I spend many hours every week listening to armchair expert and its various iterations and enjoy them. And I found this conversation with JVN really challenged this duality in me, which is all the things you're saying about Dax, where he brings a vulnerability, the way he talks about recovery, you can tell he is someone who's really done his 12-step recovery. So the places where he has done his work, it's really clear. He will really take responsibility. He can really say, oh, here's how I was wrong. Here's where my evolution has been. You could tell he learned this one piece where it was an aha for him, which is actually part of his attempting to apologize to JVN, where he says, you know, I used to think, I used to not understand anti-Blackness. He doesn't say anti-Blackness, he says racism, but he only ever talks about Black people when he's having that conversation. But where he was saying, you know, I was a white dude who was driving around constantly drunk with tons of drugs on me, and I never once was criminalized. He's like, I never once had any criminalizing experience around the massive amounts of drugs that I did. And he's like, and I do know that if I was black, that would not be true. That's the piece he could really hold. He had an evolution about understanding the context. And so he he said that actually when he was trying to apologize to JVN at the end was saying like, I understand I don't always get all the things. And it's just like, he just wasn't quite there. But there's this episode of Armchair Expert, which is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard where Dax relapsed and he did this short episode, this little standalone where he tells everybody he relapsed and he's really fresh from his relapse because he's so publicly in recovery. And it is so vulnerable. It is so honest. It is so brave. It is very, it's grounded. It's present. It's like someone who's very clearly like, I don't know yet. And I know that rigorous honesty is my path forward. And so to hold how hurt I feel for how he interacted with JVN with all these moments of how he shared his humanity actually challenges me to open up and to hold more complexity because I really want to be like mad at him. I really want to be like, no, 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 all over the internet, tap, tape, tap, 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 about um, how he acted and have to practice the piece of holding all the parts of his humanity I have seen that I have really appreciated how he talks about being a survivor of CSA. He has a very grounded way in which he's very honest and open about that. There was this beautiful episode with Amy Schumer pretty early on where she talks about being a survivor of sexual violence. And he says, oh, well, I'm also a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And she kind of brushes it off a little bit. And I was like, well, she's like, well, we're talking about me right now. (laughs) And they do this beautiful kind of repair later where she follows up and sends him this email that he gets permission to read that just where she apologized. She was like, hey, 
you know, I, I, I understand the point I was trying to make. And you were actually trying to share with me about your survivorhood and like both can coexist. And so he's actually done these amazing things about how to talk about his surviving CSA. And so trying to hold all his humanity and that I saw him act in a way that was really hurtful to another person's humanity is challenging me to hold it all. We're both holding a lot of complexity and it would be so much easier to be face punching mad and go and type. I love how you were like, type, 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 <laughs> because it's so real. Type, 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 type. Because, you know, I, I hear us both saying, man, what a disappointment that this person who is so lovely in so many different ways and has showed up in such a beautiful way to expand the ways that we think about child sexual abuse and addiction and has been so vulnerable and in many ways has been important to a lot of people because of those things, that they also did this harmful thing in a public way and there hasn't yet been repair. But that's, that is exactly what we're talking about. It takes time. And the sticky part of one of the sticky parts of transformative justice for me as a human is just the impatience of wanting things to be like, you did a wrong thing, say you're sorry, make repair, evolve, do all the things and get it done between now and the time. Like, I want it done. Like, <laughs> I would like to see it be completed. And that's just not what humans can do or should do. If we rush people and I, you know, listen, I, I, I am having a hard time saying this out loud because I don't like this, but it is the reality. <laughs> and if we rush people past the learning, they don't get the learning. So if we have a PR team step in and write a perfect apology for Dax, if Jonathan Vanessa accepts it perfectly from a, another PR team, then we have two beautiful, complex human beings that are not going to be able to be in the practice. They're only going to be able to access a very limited theory idea about how this thing should happen. And as a parent, I often say to people that I believe children have the right to be wrong for a period of time because I got to be wrong. I, I made a mistake. I got to sit in that mistake and be wrong for a period of time. I got to be indignant. <laughs> I got to blame other people for my problems. I got to have an argument. And of course, like got to is probably not the, you know, like it, it was doing harm in some way, but I had enough space in order to do that. And that is what got me through the learning. And I'm sorry that my learning curve has caused harm. And so, of course, when those things happen, I try, if I'm aware of them, to circle back and say, hey, I know that my learning curve had a cost. And I'm really sorry that I treated you that way, that I behaved that way. It, you know, whether it was my intention or not, that is what happened. And I'm sorry. But it doesn't happen overnight. And sometimes it takes a really long time. Sometimes it takes years for people to get there. And I am not a proponent of messages around, we have to forgive or else we can't heal. Or like, that's actually one of my least favorite things. We could do a whole episode on that. We'll have to find a pop culture way to get it in there. <laughs> but I do believe 
that if we want people to really feel the way, if we want them to feel apologetic, if we want them to be able to recognize that repair is necessary, then they have to have some kind of character arc, right? Like we have to, their character has to grow and change in relation to what has happened and the people around them and what they're saying and how they're coaching them. It's just not simple. And pain isn't simple. The way that we feel it when people do these things and the way that we respond in pain that either contributes to the repair or makes it less possible. All of that matters. And so it's a real, it's not easy and it's not flowery, fancy words or, you know, it's not something that is easily contained because it's the most human thing is to make a mistake, have things utterly go terrible, and then to find our way back. To support Propaganda, please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. It really makes a difference.